Welcome to the Community Hope Podcast. We exist to share hope with more people in more places. For more information on this podcast or our church, please visit communityhope.org. Now stay tuned for our Sermon of the Week. So we are going to get into uh, the message today, and we are continuing on in our series called Hope Has a Name. We've been walking through a scripture verse that if, if have you been around the church? You may be familiar with it. It's often associated with Christmas. It's Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, and uh, so we're gonna we're actually gonna read that together, right here in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six says this: For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Last week, we looked at the title, Wonderful Counselor. If you weren't able to be here with us last week, I encourage you to go online and check out that message. Today, we're going to look at the term, Mighty God. Mighty God. When Jesus came, he came to show us that he was a mighty God. The question I want you to ponder today is, what do you think is the most powerful thing that Jesus ever did? Was it when he healed the sick and proved that he was more powerful than disease? Was it when he walked on water or actually commanded the storm to stop and proved that he was more powerful than nature? Was that the most powerful thing that Jesus ever did? Or was it when he told Lazarus, a dead man, to come back to life and prove that he was more powerful than death itself? Was that the most powerful thing that Jesus ever did? Today, I would propose to you that it's actually something It's not any of those. We're actually going to get to that here in a few minutes. Because when Jesus came as the Messiah, as this mighty God, people had an awful lot of expectations of who Jesus would be. And Jesus, like he does with a lot of things, he took people's expectations and he flipped them on its head. See, because what I want you to see is, I want you to see the context for which we get this Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 which sounds really nice when it comes to Christmas, but listen to the context, because this was prophesied 700 years before Jesus came. Here we are in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoicing when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When you hear the context surrounding verse 6, it gives it a totally different flavor, doesn't it? See, the people who were hearing this message, they were being attacked by pagan armies. They were, their walls would be torn down, and they were crying out to this mighty God to save them. This was the prophecy, the context. So when it comes to this term, mighty God, you look it up in the Hebrew, and it actually means warrior God. This is what Jews were expecting when Jesus was born in this lowly little manger. They were expecting warrior God to show up 
and take care of all their problems. They were expecting the, this Messiah to be a conquering king, to kick out the Romans, to give the Jews their power that they rightfully own. This is what people were expecting. And then Jesus comes and he's born in a manger and the people who see him are shepherds. Jesus took everything and he flipped it on its head. And so it's quite often the, the frustration that they had is a frustration that we have today when we have an expectation of God. and He doesn't do what we want him to do. Because Jesus showed up as a mighty God, but the warrior God looked a little bit different than people expected. And so today, the passage we're going to look at is what I believe is the most powerful thing that this mighty warrior God Jesus ever did. Because see, for this year, we've been walking through the eyewitness account of John. And for the past few weeks, we've been spending time in what was Jesus' last meal with his disciples. But today, we transition away from that. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 18. And we're going to look and see what I believe is the most powerful thing that Jesus ever did. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Now, I feel like I have to pause here for just a minute because what's fascinating about eyewitness accounts is eyewitness accounts always leave out details. And how an inspector will know that it's truly eyewitness accounts is these eyewitness accounts will actually complement each other. They'll fill in the gaps for each other's stories. And that's what we're going to see today is that John gives us details that others don't, and he leaves out details that others give us. See, this olive grove that John's referring to is actually the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where Jesus has this very powerful wrestling with God, and John doesn't even reference it. He just says that he went to this grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. And this is where Jesus finds himself again in this, what for many Christians is a powerful moment where Jesus says, God, if you can let this cup pass from me. He actually so stressed, so worried. Another eyewitness account says he actually began to sweat drops of blood. He was in so much travail over what he knew he was about to face. John doesn't talk about this. Verse 3, the leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. So if you're watching a movie, this is where the, movie, the music gets really intense. Bum, bum, bum. This is where the conflict begins. Verse 4. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am, Jesus said. As Jesus said, I am, they all drew back and fell to the ground. This is one of those examples that I'm talking about where John leaves out really important details. Okay, because if you're like me, you're asking, wait a minute, why? Why? Because did you hear the setup? Judas is showing up with a contingent of fully armed Roman guards, hardened Roman soldiers who say, we're looking for Jesus. Jesus, unarmed, you know, meek and mild Jesus says, I'm he. And they all draw back and fall to the ground. Why? Why would they do this? John doesn't bother to tell us. 
Because it seems like what's missing here is that something supernatural happened in this moment. John doesn't tell us. I don't know if Jesus glowed. I don't know if the earthquake. I don't know what happened. But something happened which caused these hardened, fully armed Roman soldiers to fall back and fall to the ground at an unarmed Jesus. What happened? We don't know. Because John doesn't bother to tell us. I just, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask John. Why didn't you put that part in? Because that's the best part of the movie. You know? It's like where Jesus says, I am. And everybody goes, ah! I don't know what happened. John, why don't you tell us? Why don't you tell us? Well, see, the part that we miss is this part here, Jesus saying, I am. He's not saying, oh, yeah, that guy, Jesus, I'm the guy. No, what he's saying, the first time we hear this phrase is when God, when, when he's, Moses is interacting with God and God says, go to the Israelites and tell them God sent you. And he's like, well, who, God, well, who should I tell them? He says, tell them, I am sent you. So when Jesus says, I am, he's claiming divinity. He's claiming to be one with God. And in the moment, in this moment, somehow he pulls back the curtain and shows them his divinity. I don't know how he did it, but he did it because that's the only thing that would make sense why these hardened Roman fully armed guards would bow before Jesus. But that's what they did. And I know, I, I, and I like to fill in the blanks of the story because I like to put myself in the perspective of the, of the disciples. Because they've been hanging out with Jesus for three years. They know he's not just an ordinary average man. They know something's up. They know all the prophecies. And they're all flexing back here going, it's coming. Jesus is about to throw down. I knew it. I've been waiting for this moment. He's been hiding. He's been, he's been hiding his divinity. I knew he was God. I knew it. That's why I've been hanging with him all this time. We're about to go to war. I'm ready, Jesus. Just tell me. Peter's back there. He's got his hand on his sword. He's getting all itchy. Because he's ready to fight. Because you've got to remember who's following Jesus. These are rebels. These are revolutionaries. These are ones who joined with Jesus because they thought Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government. And they're ready to fight. And they're like, ooh, I knew it was coming. I knew I joined the right team. Jesus is just about to melt their faces off. I know it's coming. They're back there, and they're ready to fight because they see this happen too. And they're just waiting. They're like, just tell me, Jesus. Just tell me. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to fight. And so then look at, look at what happens next here in verse 7. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. Again, I like to fill in the blanks. I'm just guessing this time they didn't say it quite so boldly as they did the first time. They're like, uh, Jesus? Who are you looking for? Uh, I don't know. Who are we looking for? Did you guys remember? I think it was G Jesus the Nazarene. And then look here in verse 8. I told you I am he, Jesus said. And since I'm the one you want, let these others go. Again, this sounds like a movie. How many movies have you watched? You're like, I'm the one you want, let them go. That's what I picture Jesus saying. And again, the disciples are confused. They're like, well, hold, wait a minute. I thought we were going to go to war here. What do you, it sounds like you're giving up. It sounds like you're saying, okay, take me. What happened just a couple minutes ago? They were all bowing at your feet. Can we go back to that part? Because that's the part I, I was ready for. And remember Simon Peter, he's itchy, he's got his hand on his sword, 
and he hears this, he's like, oh no. No, that's not how this is going to go down. Verse 10, Simon Peter drew his sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. This is how real the scriptures are. I love this. Simon Peter, he's itchy, he's got his hand on his sword, and Jesus is like, no, take me. And he's like, no! And so what does my man Simon Peter do? Does he go attack a fully armed Roman guard? No, my man Peter, he's so bowed up, he goes and attacks a slave. And he's such a bad fighter, he'd be like me in a fight, okay? Because these muscles are just so you won't bother me, okay? I don't actually know how to fight. I hate to give that away. That's why I would be. I'm like, oh, yeah, take this. He totally misses this guy. He cuts his ear off. Like, that's the best he's got. This is such a picture of me when we try to help God out. You know what I mean? You're like, okay, God, I got this. Watch out. And we cut off the, the ear, the right ear of the high priest's slave. See, I always like to inject this. See, again, you know what this is? This is in, indication of an eyewitness account. Why would he tell us it was the right ear? Why does that matter? Because he was there and he saw it. And this actually happened. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't made up. Why would they tell us the name of the slave? Why does that matter? Because he was there and this actually happened. This wasn't a real event. That's what you do when you're an eyewitness. You have all these details that don't seem to matter to the story. And this is what this was Peter's big-time effort at rescuing Jesus. Because he was like, no, I thought we were going to go to war. And then look at what Jesus says next. Put your sword away, Peter. <laughs> Come on. Have I been with you all this time and you still don't get it? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Again, she, John didn't tell us about the Garden of Gethsemane. So if we're just reading John's account, we don't know what he's talking about. What cup? What cup is Jesus supposed to drink? Well, Matthew does tell us. And so I want to read to you a verse from Matthew. This is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're backing up the timeline a little bit. This is before the soldiers show up. And this is what he says to his disciples. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground praying. And this is the, what can tend to be a very famous prayer that he prayed. My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. This is when Jesus sweats drops of blood. Because you don't we don't understand the sacrifice it was for Jesus to say those words. Yet not what I want, but your will to be done. So what do I think is the most powerful thing that Jesus ever did? We actually already read it, but we ran right past it. I've ran past it for years until I saw it this time. The most powerful thing Jesus ever did was actually in verse 4. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. When Jesus was in that garden praying, he saw himself being whipped with a cat of nine tails. He saw the blood flowing from his back. He saw the crown of thorns being placed on his head. In that garden, he saw himself carrying a rugged cross up a hill. In that garden, when he prayed, he saw nails being driven through his hands and his feet. He saw himself dying for the sins of the world. Jesus' life was not taken. It was voluntarily laid down. 
Jesus did not go into this with naivete. He did not go into it. He went went through his eyes wide open. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. And this one little word is important. It doesn't say but. It says so. It doesn't say he knew what was going to happen to him. And in spite of that, he stepped forward anyway. No, it says so. He stepped forward to greet the suffering. He stepped forward to greet the sacrifice. He stepped forward to greet the pain. Why? Because he saw you and I, 2,020 years later, he knew what he was dying for. The most powerful thing that Jesus ever did was give his life away. That's the most powerful thing he ever did. He laid his life down willingly for you and for I. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. And he stepped forward and gave his life away anyways. That is the most powerful thing that Jesus ever did. And he illustrates us for us a principle that I think is so powerful here at Christmas. Is this, is that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And so that's why we see, and one of the most famous things that John ever said was this. For this is how God loved the world. He gave. He gave. This is how he loved. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God understood this principle that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. This is how God loved. He gave. He gave. And see, this is another thing that I've shared with you many times before, but we all know this to be true. The value of a life is always determined by how much of it was given away. Anytime we gather around at a funeral, what do we celebrate? The parts of their life they gave away. That they gave away to us. That they gave away to the people they interact with. We don't celebrate their selfishness. Do we? No, we celebrate what of their life they gave away. That's what impacted us, the the part of their life they gave away. The value of life is always determined by how much of it was given away. But isn't it fascinating that we live in a culture that all tells you just to hang on? (laughs) Go out and get more for you? We live in a culture that doesn't feed this. Feeds the opposite. It feeds, give me, give me, give me, take, take, take. It doesn't feed giveaway. It, it feeds take, 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 and take some more. So I want you to see that what Jesus introduces to us is a concept that was foreign to the world, that can still be foreign to the world today, of giving life away. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you with another John 3.16. But it's first John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what John tells us is the most rational, logical response you could have to your Savior who laid down his life for you would be to give your life away for others. John. See, John is writing this at the end of his life. John's the only one who didn't, of, the, of those 12 that didn't die a martyr's death. 
I mean, well, Judas hung himself, but John, church history tells us that they tried to take John's life. Church history tells us that John watched all of his other brothers, his disciples, get killed, martyrs' death, give their lives away. They tried to kill John. Do you know what church history tells us? They boiled him in oil, but he wouldn't die. They were so scared and intimidated him, they went and put him on an island. <laughs> they said, here, you won't do any damage there. But instead, what he do? He, he just keeps writing. And church history tells us that he lived a long life. And he was just waiting for Jesus to come back. But Jesus didn't come back like he thought. And so at the end of his life, he writes 1 John. And he tells us, I watched Jesus lay his life down for me. So the most logical response I can think of is that I would lay my life down for him. This concept is a uniquely Christian concept. You can study any other religion in the world. None of those gods laid their life down for you. None of those gods laid their life down for you. Jesus did. He laid his life down for you and for me. And then he tells you, now go and lay your life down for other people. This is a uniquely Christian concept that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. The value of a life is always measured by how much of it's given away. But again, this is not something that we teach much in our culture. It's not something that's hardwired within us. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. I have not yet to teach him to be selfish just yet. It comes very natural to him. I have a toddler, and I also have three teenagers. I don't always see a difference between them a lot of times. Because what's the concept? Still, it's like I take, I take, I take, I take, I take. What's the sign of maturity when we start to give? That's why the best thing that ever happened to me was getting married and have four kids. I wake up every day of my life and I'm reminded the world does not revolve around Brad Singleton. Best thing that ever happened to me. Because now I wake up every day and I'm faced with a reality. Am I going to fight to get others to give to me or am I going to get up today and say, how can I give my life away? Am I going to wake up every day? How do I give my life away to my bride? How do I give my life away to my kids? Next best thing that ever happened to me is I became a pastor. Now I'm faced with the same choice every day. All right, what do I do today? Do I get up today and ask how my people can give to me? Or do I get up today and say, how can I give away my life away? How can I give it away? So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, actually, even if you're not, I think the most powerful question you can ask yourself every day before you get out of bed is, how am I going to give my life away today? Because you know what the irony of this is? Jesus said crazy things when he walked here on this earth. And he told us, he said, if you try to keep your life, you will lose it. We all know this to be true. I don't care how bad you fight to hang on to life. We will be at your funeral someday. The statistics are in. One out of one people die. Everybody dies. Doesn't matter how hard you try to hang on to your life, you lose it, don't you? We all know that to be true. But then this is when Jesus says this radical thing. He said, you want to keep your life? Give it away. What? He said, yeah, you want to keep your life? Give it away. Because then, when your life is over, you're still impacting people. 
My grandparents are in heaven now. Their life still affects me today. Why? Because they gave their life away. I still think about them. I still think about the way they live. I still think about how they daily got up every day and said, how do I give my life away today? It still impacts me today. So that's the paradox following Jesus. He says, the more you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But the more you get up every day and say, okay, God, how do I give my life away today? The more actual life you'll experience. Jesus modeled this for us. So, when we are challenged to give our life away, when we're challenged to lay down our life, it's not because the Bible says so, not because the pastor says so. It's because Jesus modeled it for us. He modeled it for us. That's why 2000, almost 2,020 years later that we still gather around and sing songs about this. Because he gave his life away. He said, I didn't come to be served, I came here to serve. And so, if you really want to find the most effective way to live your life, it's upside down to what the world shows us. It's upside down. Honestly, let's just be real honest, honestly, a lot of times it's even upside down to what the Christian world will tell you. Because what do we promote? Okay, 10 steps to your best life right now. You know, follow this and you're going to have the best life. Follow this and you'll get more. Follow this. And, and that's not what Jesus taught at all. Jesus taught, do you want to you hold on to your life? Let it go. Give it away. Jesus modeled that for us by laying his life down for us. Now, I know this is simple, but it most definitely isn't easy. This is simple, but this is hard. It's simple to say each morning, okay, God, how am I going to give my life away today? Whew. But that's hard. Because we have this, Paul talks about this war within us, that we have this part of us that's just constantly clamoring to get and to get and to get. And each day we wake up and we ask ourselves, which part am I going to feed? Am I going to feed that part that it needs to get and get and get? Because that part will never, ever be satisfied. But if I wake up today and say, all right, well, how can I give my life away? That's a totally different way to live. And Jesus modeled that for us. What is the most powerful thing Jesus ever did? I believe it's when he laid his life down. I believe it's when he knew exactly what he was going to face and he stepped forward to give it away anyway. And that is how he was the mighty God. The exact opposite of what we thought he was supposed to look like. We thought he was supposed to come in as a conquering king. We thought he was supposed to come in as a warrior God and establish a throne and make everyone bow to him. Instead, he comes and he gives his life away for the sins of the world so that you and I, 2,020 years later, can still celebrate this. He came as a mighty God to give his life away. I challenge you today that hope has a name. Jesus was this mighty God. He gave it away so that today, 2,020 years later, that if you want it, you can still have a relationship with this mighty God. If you accept the gift that he came to give us, it's yours. It's yours. 
When you give your life to him, he'll give you a whole new reason for living. He'll give you a whole new reason for living. And that is to get up every day and ask yourself, okay, God, how can I give my life away today? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up if they would. And I'm going to ask you, have you entered into this relationship? Have you entered into a relationship with this mighty God that we sing about, who came lowly in a manger? Do you have a relationship with him today? Because today, he's done everything that needs to be done. This was just the start to the story, but the cross was the next step. When Jesus took the pain and the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins, he was not being punished for his own sins. He was being punished for your sins and for mine so that anybody who wants to accept that free gift of grace and mercy can have a relationship with God. And he'll give you a whole new operating system for living. Whole new operating system. Because we live in a world that teaches and promotes to you that you get up every day and you go and take what's yours. You get up every day and you go and get, get, get and consume and consume and consume. But that's never enough. We're never filled up. We're like a cup with holes. And you can keep pouring in and pouring in, but it just keeps running out. But then God comes along and says, if you devote yourself to me, then you can get up every day and say, all right, how am I going to pour out of my cup? Everybody I interact with. How am I going to pour out my cup? That is why this Savior who was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago, why this movement of Christianity exploded and took over the Roman Empire. This religion, that this, this following, this way that was illegal, 300 years later, the emperor himself said, I'm a follower of Christ. That's how Jesus took over the Roman government, not like the way they thought he would. But he did. And so that's why today you go to Rome, you know what you're going to see everywhere? Crosses. Because Jesus took over. He took over the Roman world, but not in the way we thought. Christianity spread over the world. Why? Because followers who said, I'll go and do what Jesus said, I will lay my life down willingly. And it spread like wildfire. And that's why you and I are still talking about it today. Would you stand with me? And we're going to conclude our service today by singing the song for which this series comes from. Hope has a name. But before we do, again, I want to give you that opportunity. If you've never crossed that line of faith, if you've never once said, God, I, I give you my life, I accept your free gift of grace and mercy. If you've never done that, I want to give you that opportunity right now where you are. Maybe you did a long time ago and you feel like you've drifted from God. You know what? He's just one step back. Or maybe you've been in church every single Sunday, but something that was said today just grabbed you. And today you want to say, God, help me to live my life like that. Would you close your eyes? I just want to pray a prayer with you and then we'll sing our final songs together. If that's you, and you would like to accept God's free gift of grace for you, 
You'd like to step into that relationship maybe for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time. I don't know. If that's you, would you just put your hands out in front of you like you're receiving a gift? And I'm just going to encourage you, challenge you. Would you just talk to God right now in your own way? Would you say, oh, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Thank you that because of what you did that my sins are forgiven. I accept your forgiveness. I accept your mercy. I accept your grace. God, would you help me to live out what you challenge us with? I thank you, God, for all that you're doing in the hearts and lives of people right now in the name of Jesus. If you were impacted by this sermon or if you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Community Hope on Facebook and Instagram or at our website, communityhope.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.